Well, good evening, everyone. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 1 up to verse 14. And if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye... Brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us ask our great God to help us this evening. O oh, our Father in heaven, we have read a piece of your word. And I pray, O oh, Father, that my words would not detract from your word, but that your word would be clearly set before your people. Lord, that I would speak as of the oracles of God. Lord, I don't even know what that means. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide me. Oh Lord, that your people would hear with ears that would be opened by your Holy Spirit as well. And that we together would grow closer to that perfect manhood that fullness of the stature of Christ. And I pray that you would help us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, I want to speak tonight on the church, a community of communication. 
a community of communication. All through the Bible, God's community is a communicating community. By communicating community, I mean they talk. They talk. Sometimes we just have to say it in simple terms. They talk. God talks to them through his holy word. They talk to God in prayer, and they talk to each other. This last aspect, talking to each other, is the focus of our text, Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 through 14. The church is to be a communicating community. But God's community doesn't just talk. They talk to each other with a focus. They exhort and edify, as we see in verse 11 here in our text. As Paul puts it, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Do you talk to your fellow church members? Primarily, this message is for members of Mount Zion Bible Church or prospective members. Do you talk to those who are with you in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you talk as a Christian to your fellow church members? What is the subject of your talk with your fellow church members? In your community of communication, do you exhort and edify one another? Did you know that your mouth does not belong to you? When the Lord Jesus Christ paid his life's blood to buy you, he bought you body and soul. And he bought your mouth too, your tongue as well. You are the blood-bought property of a king, King Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ bought your tongue for his use by the Holy Spirit who sustains and empowers you by his grace. Since the king owns your tongue, he has directions on how you are to employ it. Amen. And I should say how we ought to employ it. Sometimes we focus on how we are not to use our tongues, and that's very important. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Lie not one to another. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint, neither foolishness nor foolish, neither filthiness, I'm sorry, nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. But today I bring your attention to the positive requirement that Christ's church must function as a community that communicates God's truth one to another. We are a communicating community. We have a command in this text to communicate one to another within the church of Jesus Christ. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another or exhort and edify one another. As a way of getting warmed up, let's just do some thinking together about how God's community throughout all ages has been a communicating community. Each member talking, speaking uh, to the others about God, his ways, his works, and the requirements within the community. Think of Adam and Eve. We don't know much of what Adam and Eve said to each other before the fall into sin. But we do know that Adam burst out with a great husbandly celebration when he caught sight of his brand new bride. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
for she was taken out of man. That was in response to God's work. He was celebrating before his wife God's work of making his wife. That was a small community. It had two people, but that was 100% of the community that existed in the world. So you can't blame them for only getting together the two of them. But it went beyond that manly exclamation. God had communicated to Adam that they should not eat the tree of the knowledge, they should not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he told his wife. He passed on God's word to the other member of the community. Adam communicated that command to Eve clearly enough for her to repeat it in response to Satan's temptation. Let's move on to the patriarchs, just very briefly. The Lord said to Abraham, for I know, said of Abraham, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 18, 19. So the Lord God who chose Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees knew that Abraham would communicate in the community that God was forming with his family. Think of the Israelite community. The priests, the sons of Aaron, were commanded to teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken unto them by the hand of Moses, Leviticus 10, 11. Parents were commanded to teach the commandments diligently to their children and talk of them when they sat in their houses, when they walked by the way, when they lied down, when they lay down, and when they rose up, Deuteronomy 6. And individual members of Israel's community were also commanded to speak to one another Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy brother, thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Leviticus 19, 17. Think of the kings in Israel. What are all the psalms of David, the king of Israel, but communications, poems, songs, statements of God's greatness and our loyalty to him and his mercy and faithfulness to us arranged for the whole nation to read pray through and meditate on. David was communicating with his people by writing those psalms. King Hezekiah sent messengers to all Israel and Judah after in God's wrath and judgment upon the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes had been carried away to Assyria and then others put in their place. There was still a remnant of Israelites left in Samaria, the northern kingdom, and King Hezekiah sent word to them and he said, Ye children of Israel... Turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Hezekiah, as a king, was communicating. He didn't just feel for the northern kingdom. He didn't just pray for them. He didn't just send goodie bags to them after the Assyrians sacked their land. He communicated God's word to them. Think of the prophets. What are all those books that we have in the Old Testament? They're communication from God to the prophets to the people. And the prophets communicated God's word to the people. Through the prophets, we see the communicating community of Israel at its peak. What is their message? The glory of God, the promises of God, the covenant of God, the call to repent, to turn away from Israel's breaking of the covenant vows that God had made with them. Repent, return unto the Lord. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Communication all through the prophets. Think of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with his disciples. What did he do with them? He communicated to them. We constantly see gracious and appropriate communication 
from our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it was gentle and refreshing. Sometimes it was radical and rough on the flesh, but it was always edifying in the best sense of the term. Its end result to his elect people was to build them up. Its end result to those who were not his people was to tear them down. Jesus did not always answer his enemies, but he always had a word for his disciples. They weren't always expecting what he was going to say, but it was truly edifying even when it hurt. So God's people all through the Bible and all through history are a communicating community. And now we come to the epistles. There's more we could say about that, more examples, but we'll come straight now to the epistles of Paul and particularly to this epistle, the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Chapter 5 and verses 11 through 14. But before we get to verse 11, let's see what context Paul puts it in, because he gives us there a description of this communicating community in verses 1 through 10. So the first verses of chapter 5 help us catch the sense of the context in which this community communicates. Chapter 5, verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly, in other words, Paul's saying, I've told you many times before, it's a major part of my gospel message, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Paul's gospel was strongly eschatological, having to do with a look to the last things, the final establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom. A central doctrine of the gospel that he preached and of the Thessalonians' faith was that King Jesus is coming soon to overthrow the empires of this world and establish his own kingdom, a universal, glorious, holy empire that will last forever, for all eternity. All the nations of the world and creation itself will crumble and bow in humility before the awesome manifestation of the empire of King Jesus. And the reason why I'm using the word empire is because he's writing to people in the Roman Empire. No wonder that mob in Thessalonica that we heard about on the Lord's Day, the mob in Thessalonica could try to stir up the rulers with the claim that Paul was turning the world upside down by declaring a new king one Jesus, and the rulers would listen to that mob because Paul's gospel was radically strong on declaring a new kingdom, a new rule, a new empire that would replace all the empires of the world. As we heard on the Lord's Day, the gospel of Jesus is that dangerous message that was preached by a dangerous man on a mission, Paul the Apostle. And he had a dangerous method, upsetting the religious Jews and upsetting the idolatrous Gentiles by publicly heralding the kingdom of Jesus. So here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we see that he mentioned the day of the Lord. That's the inauguration, or actually the consummation, of the coming in of the kingdom of Christ. 
Verse 3 says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. At that time in history, Thessalonica, the city where the people of the Thessalonians lived and where Paul wrote this letter to, Thessalonica was a leading city in the entire, in, it was a leading city of the entire region of Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. And it enjoyed special, special privileges from Rome, the Roman Empire. The city was prosperously positioned with major east-west and north-south trade routes and an ocean port, and it was protected from harsh weather by mountains that surrounded certain parts of the city. And as a whole society, the people of Thessalonica were well off. Within the city, there were slaves and there were lower-class people who were very poor, but the whole economy of that city was very prosperous. And they had been under the control of the Romans for about 200 years by the time that Paul was writing this letter. And while they had been impoverished and and, um, oppressed by the Romans at first, by this time, they were a major part of the empire. In fact, because of some political things that had gone on between various competing um, Caesars, Thessalonica actually had a special place in the empire because they had supported one of the Caesars who eventually gained the throne and took over the entire empire. And so they were considered a major part of the Roman Empire, and they had special privileges. And in their minds, they were in a time of peace and safety. And so when that wandering preacher, the Apostle Paul, came through declaring that Jesus, a crucified Jew from Palestine, he died and he rose again three days later, and now he's ruling the world And very shortly, he's going to destroy the empire. It was a radical, and even politically radical, message. And here, when he's telling the Thessalonians, when they shall say peace and safety, he's meaning the people around you. When all the people, your neighbors say peace and safety prosperity and security, we're good. We've got food, we've got money, we've got a high status in the empire, we're well off, we're well connected, our temples are beautiful, the images of our false gods are well polished, and we offer sacrifices as often as we want. We have peace and safety. This is something that rings very loud in the Thessalonians' ears. The message of the people around them is peace and safety. And Paul says, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The Apostle Paul brought a very disturbing message to that happy, peaceful, prosperous pagan empire, and Paul planted a colony in that city of Thessalonica. He planted a colony of the empire of light, and he's going to make that more clear in the next few verses. This colony of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to the Thessalonians is intrusive, foreign, subversive, as we heard in the message on the Lord's Day 
about that dangerous Christian Paul. One empire was invading another. One king was deposing another. One law was replacing another. And one kingdom was superseding an established kingdom. And Paul tells them in verse 4, he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor, nor of darkness. And so he says that the Thessalonian Christians have a particular secret that they know and the people around them do not. They are not in darkness. They know that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the establishment of Christ's kingdom and all its glory is coming as a thief. And here in this passage, Paul is picturing Christ's kingdom as a realm of light, of the day of salvation, or an empire of light. The empires of this world are destined for wrath, damnation, destruction, burning. And that's why he uses the language of they shall not escape. Destruction cometh upon them and the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night. The empire of Rome and all the empires of this world are the kingdom of darkness ruled by the prince of darkness. And what can you think of more contrastive than darkness and light? Day and night, salvation and damnation, life and death. Those are the distinctions, those are the contrasts that Paul is seeing between the citizens of the empire of light and the citizens of the empire of Rome, who really are the citizens of the empire of Satan. And he sees the Christians in Rome as being members of a different community than the one you see them in. You see them walking the streets of Thessalonica. I'm sorry, I think I said Rome a minute ago. But Thessalonica, you see the Christians in Thessalonica walking the streets with the other people. Paul sees them as foreigners. And because they're not just foreigners, but they're actually enlisted in someone else's army, they're spies. They're subversive. They're not welcome in that empire, the kingdom of Satan, represented by the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome. So there's, there's people living together who are members of different realms, different kingdoms, different empires, different realities. Some are saying peace and safety. Others are saying flee from the wrath to come. Some are saying let's sleep. Let's drink. And others are saying, stay awake. They live together, but they are very different. Verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. And remember, when he says others, he's talking about the other people in Thessalonica. The other people in Thessalonica were bustling about going to the market, going to the temple, I read in some of my research that the, the roads going in and out of Thessalonica, we have records from that period that they were heavily traveled. In fact, someone was banished from Thessalonica and they appealed for an, for an extension of time to stay in Thessalonica because they said the roads are too, they're full of people and ox carts and, and wagons. We can't, I can't go. 
which probably was an excuse, but, I mean, if you're banished, then you want to stay as long as you can. But still, it illustrates the point that there was a lot of traffic. So it didn't look like a city that was sleeping, but Paul says the city of Thessalonica is asleep. But let us watch and be sober. It reminds us of Christ's words to his disciples, watch, for you know not what hour the Son of Man doth come. Paul says, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. Thessalonica is a night city. It's dark, and the people in it are asleep. But there are some who are awake. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Thessalonica is a drunk city, drunk on their pride, their selfishness, their carnality, their covetousness, their materialism. But let us who are of the day, of the day, we belong to something else. We belong to another realm, another kingdom, another empire, the empire of light. Be sober, putting on, oh no, weapons, military clothing, military attire, a breastplate of faith, and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So in this realm of darkness, this realm of drunkenness, there are some people that God has called out. They are the elect ones. They are the special ones that Christ, by his gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has separated from the kingdom of darkness, and he has made them citizens and heirs of the kingdom of light. They are no longer citizens in a spiritual sense of the Roman Empire, even though they still are physically. We won't go as far as the old Anabaptists and say you lose your your earthly citizenship, but we will say that inasmuch as the Roman Empire represented the kingdom of Satan, these Christians have lost their citizenship, and now they have a greater Lord and a greater king. These Christians are children of the day, citizens of the kingdom of light. They were radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel declaration of the kingdom of light in Christ. The power of the kingdom to come entered their souls. They surrendered to Christ and began to live as citizens of the coming empire of light, even while they still physically inhabited the kingdom of darkness and drunkenness. They are now foreigners where they used to be citizens. They're children of light in the city of darkness. They're citizens of the new earth while they're still living on the old earth. These Thessalonian, the Thessalonian citizens around the Christians are asleep. They don't see the coming day of judgment. They don't see the kingdom of Christ looming on the horizon of God's purpose. They don't see the storm clouds of God's judgment gathering in the West. And Paul says to the Christians in Thessalonica, all around you, your society is sleeping. No, they're stone drunk. Drunk with pleasure, drunk with prosperity. They're out cold. If you talk to them, they're deaf. If you kick them, they're unresponsive. They're asleep in a drunken stupor. So as soldier citizens of the new empire, the empire of light, training for the empire to come, be sober and arm yourself for a mortal fight. Put on a breastplate of faith and love. What's a breastplate for? It's for blows. It's for sword fighting. It's for somebody coming at you with a sword or a club 
or some other weapon, a spear. What is a helmet for? It's for getting into bloody combat because these drunken sleepers do fight. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That is amazing. My citizenship in the kingdom of light, the empire of light, is not a result of anything in me. It's simply the glorious result of God's electing grace. Did you see what he said? God has not appointed us to wrath. Us, in this whole passage, is those who are the citizens of Christ's kingdom. They, or them, are the other people in Thessalonica. And he says, God has not appointed us to wrath. It's God's appointment. It's the result of his grace. He appointed us to escape the wrath to come and to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that's why Jesus died on the cross, to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, whether we pass through the river of death or Christ finds us alive at his return, we will live together with him for all eternity. Amen. Amen. Think about that wrath that he says God has saved us from. He's not appointed us to. It's the outpouring of God's righteous fury against sin to all eternity on the wicked. If you're in Christ, God has not appointed you for that wrath. Consider this salvation he mentions. He says, but to obtain salvation. He's appointed you to obtain salvation. What is this salvation? Here he's talking about Christ's return. He's talking about the consummation of Christ's kingdom, the the empire to come that's going to knock out all the other empires of this world, like in Daniel's vision. And here Paul says, to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, it is eternal glory, enjoying the pleasures at God's right hand forevermore, drinking in the beauty and glory of his presence, praising and honoring and blessing and thanking God to all eternity. What could be more pleasant than that? What could be more joyful than that? God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. He hung on Calvary's cross, pouring out his lifeblood, suffering the wrath of his Father, accepting it upon himself for sin of his people, the sin of his people, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Most of the rest of my message will be aimed at believers because that's why we're here to talk about the communicating community. But let me pause right here. Paul says, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Are you one of the children of light? Are you a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Are you sure God has not appointed you for wrath? Are you sure God has appointed you for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question for you. If not, 
run to Christ. Cry out to the living God to do what he did for these Thessalonian Christians. By God's power, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. And when the Apostle Paul, that dangerous Christian, went into that dangerous place and declared the gospel of the risen Christ, the reigning Christ, and the returning Christ, some believed. They were God's workmanship. They were not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't think you are one of those, pray God makes you one. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> so who are the Thessalonian Christians? They are citizens of a new kingdom that has come into the world and is not yet consummated in the world. It's been brought in. They are citizens of the kingdom of light, and they are at war with the kingdom of darkness. These children of light form a community called a church. Now, you might have missed that we were talking about the church, and the only reason we might have missed it is because I'm not very organized, and our tradition demands that we preach short messages. So I didn't start where Paul started in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll see it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not writing to a random bunch of believers who are just scattered around in the city, milling around, fighting the kingdom of darkness on their own. They are God's called out ones. They are a local body or a group of local bodies, depending on who you read and what they, what they see in the, in the working out of, the, of the, the New Testament structure of the church. But in the city, depending on how many people were there, it was probably one body at this point. He says the church, so at least he's seeing it in a unified form. The kingdom of light the empire of light that has come in to rival Satan's kingdom and to cause tension between those who believe in Thessalonica and those who don't is visible, is manifest in local committed bodies of believers called churches. <clears throat> churches are the manifestation of the kingdom of light in direct conflict with the fallen, depraved empire that they live in and among. These churches, or local garrisons of the soon-to-be-revealed empire of light, are communities of communication. And that's, now we're back where we, where we started, where I was going. It took me a long time to get there, but we're there. A community of communication. Just as we saw that God's communities in history have been committed to communication, so this one is as well. The, the church of Jesus Christ has members, and those members talk. And they talk about things that matter to the kingdom of light. Let's see what Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 about how the citizens of the kingdom of light communicate. And then we'll look at how it's different 
from the people around them. Because the people around them are drunk. They're asleep. Don't think their communication will be more than snoring and, and garbled, drunken communication. But Christ's people speak to one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. And what we have is in verses 11 through 14, we can kind of give it a little simple structure and we won't, um, we won't spend a long time on each piece, but in verse 11, we have members to fellow members. In verse 12 and 13, we have members to their elders and elders to fellow members, elders to their members. And then in verse 14, we have members and elders, the whole body, to other members. <clears throat> so first, verse 11, members to members. Paul is talking to the brethren. He says in, in chapter 5, verse 1 there, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. So in verse 11, he says to the brethren, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. And you'll see that this is very similar to verse 18 of the prior chapter, chapter 4, verse 18, after Paul had given a related declaration of the coming in of Christ's kingdom at the last day when Christ will come, um, those who are dead will not, those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not prevent those who are asleep, but the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18 in chapter 4 there says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. And here in our chapter, chapter 5, verse 11, Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Comfort yourselves. This word comfort is actually the word that's often translated exhort, encourage. It's related, it, but the, it's the verb form, of the word that's translated the comforter when the Lord Jesus says that I will send a comforter unto you to be with you. We also have it translated in our Bibles as beseech. We could say that this could be seen in this context. I believe the King James translators did exactly what they should do because we're talking about the coming in of the kingdom and its fullness and relieving us of the oppression of those sleeping drunken ones around us who are destined for wrath. Christ coming and bringing in our glorious kingdom that we're waiting for. And so these are words that would comfort one another. But at the same time, this word could be translated exhort one another, encourage one another, beseech one another. It basically means come alongside the brother and give him a boost. Give him some strength, some added strength, some help as he goes along. It's a command given by Christ's apostle Paul to the rank and file of God's soldiers of his kingdom of light. They're supposed to do something for each other. They're supposed to comfort each other. They're supposed to encourage each other, exhort each other. What is the subject of this encouragement, this comfort, and this beseeching? What we just read about. The glorious reality of Christ's gospel 
Christ's substitutionary work, Christ's kingdom of light inaugurated, Christ's kingdom of light especially to come in its fullness. That's what we're supposed to speak of to one another. You ever run out of something to say to a brother? Just think of the gospel. I'll bet you'll have plenty to say if you think of Christ's work. Comfort, edify, encourage one another. And also here in verse 11, we have a second word, edify one another. He says, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And this word edify, it basically means build each other up. It comes from the metaphor of building a house as representing strengthening and improving or equipping another person, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. How do we build up? Well, there's a lot about edification in the New Testament. And so we could go a lot of places, but you can do the research on your own, and I encourage you to do so. Probably the most compact statement and most full statement of how to edify others or what edification means is, well, of course, the whole New Testament is edification. It's building up God's people. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I won't read it, but I'll summarize it. Paul says that through humbly preserving the unity of the Spirit in the church of Christ, we should exercise all our gifts given to us by our king. Now imagine the king, he has established this kingdom. He's put his, his spies, his citizens of his kingdom, who he's putting in another kingdom, he's put them all out there in this foreign kingdom. Do you imagine he'd put them out there without equipment? He gives us everything we need, and he gifts his church. And so we should exercise all our gifts given to us by our king to build up his body so that every member in the church will be as mature as they can be, and so that we'll reach as much unity as possible in our faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God, so we'll be complete, not tossed around by the wind of doctrine concocted by lying men. The goal is to be one body, united and harmonious, so that the body grows together, building up itself in love. So that's my butchered summary of Ephesians 4, but you can read it for yourself and meditate on it. It's amazing. And you'll probably come away with encouragement and conviction as I realize, at least, how little I think of the brethren in needing to build them up. But Paul here commands us, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Then in verse 12, And 13, we have members to elders and elders to members. Every military has rank. Christ's kingdom has rank as well. Now, it's not the same. Jesus did say the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but ye shall not be so. But at the same time, there is an authority structure in Christ's church. And we'll see that in verse 12, the latter part of verse 12. But first... We have two commands, or two, not, not so much um, commands, but uh, statements that help us see how members communicate to their elders, and then we'll see how elders communicate to their members. In verses 12 and 13, he says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So at the beginning of verse 12 there, 
Paul commands us that members, he beseeches us, he begs us. He says that members are to know and esteem their elders very highly. At first glance, knowing and esteeming might seem to be mental activities rather than communication activities. You might think, well, wait, kind of, you know, getting off topic of communication. But in these verses, 11 through 14, we're in a context of interpersonal communication and interpersonal relationships. And we have talking right before it and after it. And how do you know if brother X or sister Y is knowing their elders? And how do you know if they are esteeming them very highly in love? Only if they talk about it. Only if they communicate about their relationship with their elders. And so this has to do with how we speak. It has to do with our speaking to our elders and also our speaking to one another about our elders. What does it mean to know our elders? The verb is very simple, to know. And it can be taken in that simple sense. And definitely that's where we need to start. Do you know your elder? Right now in the Lord's providence, it's twice as easy to obey this command as it was a couple years ago because you only have one elder. Do you know him? Know him. I'm going to join Paul, not with the same authority. Know Pastor Jeff Paul. Being well acquainted with your elder will enable you to understand his communication. I have suffered because of not obeying this command of Scripture. Know him. But this word, know, goes simply, it goes beyond simply taking cognizance or taking, making acquaintance with your elder. It also is used to mean recognize or respect, pay appropriate attention to your elder or elders. <clears throat> Observe, take recognition of the work, which we'll get to shortly, that God has given them or God has given him. Understand who the elders in Christ's church are in his kingdom. Understand their authority, their function, their role. Recognize it and respect it. Elders have authority. And as they exercise that authority, according to God's word, reflecting the commission that the great shepherd has given them, it demands respect. And at the minimum, our response to our elders should reflect more respect and recognition than our response to other members because Christ has called them to a specific work. And that's why Paul says here, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The work that elders have been called to is a special office, a special responsibility, a special work. <clears throat> Before we look at the elders' roles, their work is communication in verse 12. Jump down to verse 13. He says, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. What does it mean to esteem elders very highly in love for their work's sake? I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean ignoring their preaching. It doesn't mean despising their counsel. And it doesn't mean undermining their authority in the church. It means affection. 
It means love. It means dedication. It means loyalty. And it means honor. It means appreciation. It means care. It means financial support. It means obedience. It means that within the garrisons of the kingdom of light that are set in the city of the empire of darkness, the soldiers are united and organized, not by an iron-fisted rule of a captain sent by Rome, but with the loving and loved hand of a man like the Apostle Paul, who could spend and be spent for his fellow soldiers. And we have one. We have that kind of elder at Mount Zion. Do you thank God for him? Do you communicate your love to him? And do you communicate your esteem of him to others within the communicating community of the church of Jesus Christ? So recognize and esteem your elder very highly in love for his work's sake. Communicate that within the community that God has put us. And then we have elders to members. And this is what people generally think about when they think about a church communicating because they think of going to sermon. And because that's a common thought, I won't spend a lot of focus on it. And my emphasis today is on members and our speaking one to another. And so I will mention this section. It deserves probably a whole list of sermons, and I think Brother Jeff's about to do them because he's going to give us a series on elders. So in verse, um, verse 12, it says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now I should say, I've already gone this far, I'm using the word elders, but it wasn't here. He describes the work of an elder. And throughout the New Testament, we see the word elder applied or pastor or overseer or bishop applied to one who does these works within Christ's church. <clears throat> so briefly here in verse 12, we see the communication responsibilities of the elder to the members of Christ's church. They labor, and that labor is in the word and doctrine. It's communication. They rule, and that rule is according to God's word. It's communication. They admonish, and admonishing is, of course, an action of communication. Urging, rebuking, reproving, turning someone from a sinful way to a godly way, beseeching someone on the basis of Christ's work and encouraging and directing them in God's ways. So members in Christ's church are to comfort themselves together and edify one another. Members in Christ's church are to recognize, respect, and esteem very highly their elders in love for their work's sake. And elders are supposed to labor, rule, and admonish Christ's people with communication. And then next, in verse 14... Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Paul's unique emphasis in verse 14 is calling the Christian community of light, this empire of light that's in the midst of the empire of darkness, 
to respond to all the brethren in the church with one disposition, patience, that he mentions at the end of the verse, but with actions of communication specifically suited to each individual's need. I said each member is called upon to communicate to the other members. In this kingdom of light, the elders have a definite, clear, and decisive role of labor, rule, and directive speech. But the members also have a clearly defined role of communication to each of the other members. So we should ask, how do we know that verse 14 describes the responsibilities of the rank and file of God's people? Is the pastor preaching not enough for the fulfillment of this verse 14? Well, Paul had spoken of those who rule, are over you in the Lord, who are among you, who labor among you, are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And here he goes back to brethren. He says, now we exhort you, brethren. He certainly includes the elders, but he's talking to the same brethren that he had encouraged in verses 1 through 11 and that he had encouraged in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He's speaking to the brethren. And he's saying, brethren, do these things. Take on this responsibility to the other brethren. Now, here's a question that's very important. Does this command, do these commands apply to each and every one of us in exactly the same way? No. How can I say no? Well, Paul clearly teaches in Romans chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4, you can look those up or you can just recall that they have lists of different gifts in the church and that Paul says we're all gifted differently. And because of different gifting, we have different callings. We have different, you know, some of us in, in, at time he lists um, prophecy and, and um, tongues and also all down through giving and administration and governments and so many different gifts within Christ's church. And according, in chapter, Romans chapter 12 especially, he emphasizes that it's according to the faith that God gives you and the gifting that God gives you that we serve. So it's not that we have all have exactly the same responsibility, but is there not a believer who can warn another, another brother to some degree? Are we not, by the working of the Holy Spirit in us, gifted to some degree to warn, some degree to comfort, some degree to support, some degree to be patient toward all men? I would say yes. The gift of Christ is so generous to all of us that all of us have some capacity to warn, comfort, support. Notice that in this verse 14, Paul tells us to make a distinction between different kinds of needy people in the church. You say, well, I thought we weren't supposed to judge. We're not supposed to declare that someone is under the wrath of God until the day of judgment or until they demonstrate that they are under the wrath of God. And we are not to come to hasty conclusions about people's actions and their, especially not their thoughts and their words, but we are to make distinctions between those who are unruly, those who are feeble-minded, and we'll define what that is, and those who are weak. We are to say, okay, is this brother unruly? Is he weak? Because you don't want to support 
the unruly. And you don't want to warn the weak. At least not in their moment and situation of weakness. So what is he calling us to? He's calling the rank and file of God's people to maturity. He's saying grow up and you need to start supporting one another and speaking to one another and encouraging one another and helping one another and discern one another. It's not just the pastor's job. He has a great part in that. In fact, the elders are called to oversee and to feed the flock of God. So a great responsibility of discernment and judging the situations within the church rests on his shoulders. But it rests on all of us. It rests on all of us. And what do you think would be the result if every one of us discerned the needs of all the brethren and sisters around us and prayed that God would give us the gifts to help them? we might find out that actually we were the ones needing help because sometimes we misunderstand other people's situations and we might find out in encouraging the brother that we're the ones that got encouraged and but hey at the end of the day the whole church is built up by such a process <clears throat> to fulfill verse 14 we have to cry out to God for wisdom And James chapter 1 tells us that if we lack wisdom, we should pray that God will give it to us and that he gives liberally and he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't upbraid us and say, go away, I'm not going to give it to you today. <clears throat> he gives liberally. So cry out to God for wisdom to make the right distinctions within the church of Christ. What does it mean in the first part of verse 14 when he says, warn them that are unruly. Basically, we could paraphrase it as admonish the irregular or disorderly, those who don't submit to the guidance of the elders and the rest of the congregation. It might be that the, the idle brother that Paul mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. You can turn just a couple pages over to 2 Thessalonians, the end of, of the, the little letter of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. In verse 11, Paul says, In uh, verse 10, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and, and remember he's, he's writing to the whole church, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, Note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, this is probably, this, this latter part, verses 13 through 15, is probably not something, and I can almost say certainly, it's not something an individual is supposed to do in shunning another individual on his own. This appears to be an action of the church. But that admonishing could be a public admonishing, but it would also fit right in with what we were just reading. Warn them that are unruly. What if you meet a brother who has been disciplined by the church? What should you do to him? You should admonish him. You've already publicly pronounced 
the church's decision regarding his, his, his way of living. You're shunning him as a body. And what if you meet him? Do you run the other way? What do you do? Do you say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. You admonish him. You admonish him. Now, if he's proven to live as an unbeliever, you might admonish him as a lost man. But you admonish him. So the disorderly, that's the same word, um, disorderly. And so possibly he's talking about those who are idle, working not at all. And in my reading and looking at, at 1 Thessalonians, the background of 1 Thessalonians, um, some were pointing out that in the Roman province of Macedonia and in Thessalonica in particular, there was a strong culture of the Roman custom of patrons and clients. So people that were connected with Rome, they had special wealth and privileges, and they would have a whole group of people around them who were kind of leeches, suckers, that were like supported by the rich guy, by the guy who had clout with Rome. And so it appears maybe that Paul is targeting that idea of saying, okay, you've got, we read in Acts how that there were prominent women who became part of the, part of the church there, who believed in Christ, and so maybe there were some, some people who were saying, well, I'm going to be supported by these people. I'm going to, we're going to form a new Christian, you know, um, Roman patron-client relationship. And Paul is saying, no, work, support others, love others, work for your own needs and those who are around you. Whatever the specific cultural context was, people were being lazy. And that's disorderly. And it's the kind of thing Paul's saying, you can talk to him about that. If he's unruly, admonish him. It doesn't say, tell other people about it. It doesn't say, tell the elders about it. Although, depending on the situation, it would be appropriate to tell the elders. But he says, warn that brother. That's your responsibility. This brother has gone astray. Have a warning conversation with him, an admonishing conversation. Me do that? Let the pastors do it. No, Paul says, brethren, warn the unruly. But he might get mad. No, he might repent. And you will have saved a soul from death and recovered a brother from the error of his way. Verse, um, the second part of verse 14, he not only said, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, he also says, comfort the feeble-minded. Now, we use the word feeble-minded in a way that they didn't use it in the time of the King James translators, so we'll need to um, examine that a little bit. Feeble-minded does not mean someone who lacks intellectual ability. If you came to somebody and started comforting them with the gospel, and they said, why are you talking to me about this? And you said, well, he told me to comfort the feeble-minded. They might be offended, and you might not fulfill your purpose. But here, feeble-minded is rather the idea of faint-hearted. Someone whose faith is becoming overwhelmed as they're in conflict with the power of darkness. Remember, we are subversive spies belonging to the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of darkness. Christ's empire's on the horizon, but we are in the trenches. We've got, we need breastplates, helmets. What's that for? Swords and spears. 
And if we didn't put our breastplate on right, we're going to be bleeding. And if we didn't wear our helmet, we're going to have head wounds. And brethren, we meet those in the church of Christ. Sometimes I've got head wounds and I've got heart wounds. Spiritual diseases, spiritual wounds that need healing. And God has given me a whole church of people to comfort me when I'm in that condition. We're in the trenches. Battle has already started. At Thessalonica, you've got sleeping, drunk citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but believe me, they can pack a punch. Even while they're sleeping in their darkness and drunk, they can do a lot of damage to Christ's kingdom, Christ's citizens. A true citizen of the kingdom of light loves not his life to the death, as we see in Revelation, and he's out there fighting and being fought against. And therefore, sometimes we get spiritual PTSD, and we need some therapy, but not psychological junk. We don't need to go to a tail chaser, as my grandfather used to say. We need gospel therapy. And should the pastors be loaded with all the burden of comforting all the feeble folk in Christ's church? They have that responsibility, and our pastor takes it gladly. But Paul is commanding us to bear it with him, to encourage, to comfort, to refresh our brethren. God has provided abundantly for the needs of his church. And he's done it through all the members of his church. He's given us a whole church for that purpose. What does it mean to support the weak there in verse 14? He says, comfort the feeble, warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. Well, that's pretty general. If somebody needs holding up, hold them up until more help gets there. If somebody's about to fall, hold them up. Support them. And, and how do you support someone? With God's word. It doesn't come from your own mind. You might say, well, I'm not a counselor. I don't have great resources. Well, has God given you something? Has he given you a little bit? Has he given you a little gift? Has he given you a little talent? Has he given you a little first aid kit? Every Christian soldier that is in Christ's trenches has a little first aid kit. It might not be enough for every wound they receive. They might need the, the medics to come in, but they have something, and they can help someone else with a little bit. And Christ multiplies it with that, when that little bit is applied in faith. Pastor Jeff has been faithfully teaching us about the weaker brother from Romans and 1 Corinthians. And that's, that's, one, that's one aspect of a weaker brother, somebody who is not clear on the gospel and is causing conscience issues in his own mind and heart. Well, that's an example of a weaker brother. How do you hold up a weaker brother who's having conscience issues? Well, for one thing, you don't flout the thing he's concerned about in his face. Amen. You don't do it in front of him, but there's other kinds of weaker brothers as well. There are many situations where Christ's soldiers are weak. And if you've got a little strength, lend your arm to your brother. Let your sister lean on your shoulder. Pray with them. Feed them scripture. Talk to them about what God has done for you and for them. Support the weak. Warn the unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, the faint-hearted. 
support the weak. And then not only the three commands of what we are to do in communicating with all of our brethren, but the disposition that we are to have in all of those things. Because we could be tempted when we are warning the unruly, comforting the feeble-minded, faint-hearted, and supporting the weak, we could be tempted to become impatient. And Paul says to all of us, I exhort you, now we exhort you, brethren, be patient toward all men. Patient toward all men. And I believe the all in this context is the different kinds of Christians in the church. He could be talking about all people out in the world, but I believe he's talking, he's just given us a list of three different kinds of people in the church. And now he says, be patient toward all. In other words, all of them. If you're, if you're trying to comfort somebody who's faint-hearted, be patient. If you're trying to warn an unruly brother, be patient. And if you're trying to support the weak, be patient. Whatever ragamuffin soldier falls next to you in the trenches, be patient with him and help him. So we have here in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, several exhortations and commands to communicate one to another. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. I did skip that part. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. God, through his apostle, is commanding us to have a community of communication. But how can we cultivate that? We don't have that culture. And I'm not saying that hypothetically. I'm saying we don't have that culture. We don't have the culture of communicating about Christ's things enough. We do it. I'm not saying we don't at all, but that we don't have that culture of constantly holding up the weak, constantly comforting the faint-hearted, constantly reproving and warning those who are in sin. What do we do to cultivate a community of communication as we're commanded here? Well, first of all, we have to wake up to what's real. And that's what Paul was doing in the first part of the chapter. He's telling us what things, the way things really are. Sometimes we are asleep like the world around us. Sometimes we are at least partially drunk. Paul is saying, wake up to what's real. Understand that you are children of light, citizens of the kingdom of light, living as foreigners in a doomed empire that's hastening to destruction. Why do we get drunk with the wine of the world? It's because we think that it's real, that it's meaningful, that it, it has real point to it. But if we understood that it's hastening to destruction, we would avoid it. Second, understand God's electing, the second thing under wake up to what's real. Wake up to what's real first in understanding you're a child of light. Understand also that God's electing grace has appointed you not to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You temporarily occupy a doomed empire, but that should fill you with anticipation, joy, and confidence knowing that the glory of Christ's kingdom is coming. So wake up to that reality, and if you wake up to that reality, then it'll change your communication. It'll change what you talk about, what you love, 
and what you think about. Also, waking up to what's real, we should glory in the substitutionary work of Christ there in verse 10. He died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Christ died for us. That's enough to make us talk. Wake up to what's real. The world around you is sleeping. They're drunk on the lies of a world that's improving, a humanity that's reaching a glorious climax, pleasure experiences that will take them out of this world. They will go out of this world, but it's not in pleasure. But you, wake up. That's what Paul's saying here. He said it. He said it better than I did, definitely. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. If we're watching and sober, we'll talk, and we'll talk about what matters. And then, secondly, we need to repent of talking like the world. The world that we live in, the soon-to-be-destroyed kingdom of darkness, is a communicating community also. But what is their conversation? What is the narrative that drives their talk? According to this passage, in, in, there in verse 7, where he says, They that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Their communication, the world's communication, can only be snores and drunken babble. Stupidity. You're a foreigner among them. You have no interest in what interests your enemy. Your allegiance is not the same as theirs. Your pride and joy is not the same as theirs. You have no appetite for their pleasures. Don't talk like them. Let's think about what they think about. What does the media of this world put before us every day, and what does everyone talk about? When they're not complaining about things that bother them, they think about four things, and you can name more. I just sat down and thought about a few of them. I think they're important ones. They think about stuff to covet, pleasures that they're never going to enjoy but they wish they had, representative personalities to envy, and stories that shape us into their image. Stuff, pleasure, people, stars, and stories. Movies, music, whatever, stories. Even tattoos are a story. Somebody told me one time, can a Christian get tattoos? I said, well, do you want one? He said, yeah. I said, why do you want one? He said, I want to tell my story. I said, okay. I never thought of it that way. Tattoos are a story. So stuff to covet, pleasures to covet, and people to envy, and stories to shape us. What do people talk about? My new boat. The fun I had on the weekend. Mr. Superstar. And the movie I watched. That's all people talk about. What do children of darkness talk about? They talk about these things. Check yourself. Turn your ears on next time you have a free-flowing conversation. What are you talking about? What is the person you're talking to talking about? What am I talking about? Have we just cleaned up and Christianized the idols of the world that we live in? Have we made them more, or maybe we don't, you know, we're not quite as crass about the stuff. But still, toys, pleasures, experiences, people that we envy. Is that still what fills our words? Now, I have to give a balancing word because I often want pastors or preachers to give a balancing word. And it is okay to talk about mundane things. God did create them. 
and they comprise a major part of our daily life. But in what context do we talk about them? How do we think about them? Are they things we covet and want and love and worship? Or is it that God has provided something for us? Is it that we're going to serve God in a particular way? Is it that we're thankful for what he has done for us? You know, if if the Lord gives you a new car, it's great to tell the brethren about the new car because God has provided it for you. And it's okay also to talk about some of the details of it. But do you love it? Does it fill your conversation? Or do you get back to meaningful things eventually? We can talk about a car, a house, a boat, a park, an outing, and I will talk to you about those things. So don't don't expect me to quit talking about things of life. But everything we talk about, we should ask, does this edify? Does this comfort, exhort, encourage the brethren? And am I, have I gone to the point of wasting time with this conversation? Here's some questions to help us fulfill the commands of this passage. Do I often start conversations with another brother or sister about the great works of God? I'm asking myself these questions. They're not just for you. God's great works are found in his word. You can see them in the lives of his people in your own life. Do you start conversations about that? Or do you let everybody else start good conversations? Do I often share the fruit of my meditation on some great and glorious aspect of the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? We are spies for God's kingdom. The empire of light is about to break over this world. Do we long for it? Do we look for it? And do we talk about it? If not, why not? And if we do, let's do it more. Let's do it more. And tomorrow, when I'm talking about mundane things, you can start a conversation with me about good things. Do you consider your brethren? You know, if we're going to fulfill... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, where he told us to warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. We're going to actually have to sit down and think about and pray about and pray for our brethren. We're not just going to be able to just let it, like, fall on us. We're going to have to tailor a conversation with them. We're going to have to think, okay, he seems unruly, but actually... Maybe he needs support. Maybe he's weak. And we're going to have to work on him. It might actually take a little bit of work to say, what's going on? We might actually have to talk. That'd be a good thing. So we'll have to consider the needs of our brethren. And we also need to mortify unbridled speech. I need to. If we have the gift of gab, then we should mortify it, channel it, and redirect it. And turn it into something fruitful. Christ's kingdom. And then we need to learn from good examples of communication. Listen to Christ. Read the word. Listen to Christ communicating. Listen to how he communicates, what he talks about. Martha, Martha, you're careful and troubled about many things, but Mary has chosen the better part. He did ask practical things. He talked about practical things. Where have you laid him? In other words, where's the grave? That's pretty practical. But he had an ultimate purpose. He was doing something with those people. He was interacting with them. He wanted to heal Lazarus, raise him from the dead. He was, he was about to do that. So he had to ask a practical question. <clears throat> Christ 
words are full of practical words, sermons, prayers, warnings, personal words. The variety is astonishing. His speech is marvelously adapted to every situation learned from him. In all of it, he edified and exhorted others. Listen to the apostles and the prophets communicating. Read the whole Bible. The whole Bible is your example. How should we talk? Read the Bible. and Don't just quote it to people. People probably think you're a little weird if you do that. But add just like God said, and then you can quote it. Then it works. But don't just quote it. I'm being a little funny. But it, take God's word in, meditate on it, and then apply it to each situation. Regurgitate it in a more palatable form for each situation. Just look at the different kinds of communication in the Bible. Stories. It's okay to tell stories. Great stories. Genealogies. Building project reports. Think Nehemiah and Ezra. History. Poems. Short stories. Parables. Personal letters. It's, it's all over the place. You can find any kind of genre of communication. So if you like poetry, support the weak with poems. Warn the unruly with poems. Make up poems all the time, but use them for God. I don't like poetry, so I won't do that. So look at how God has communicated with us through his people and learn. Listen to your elder and learn from his communication. Learn how to communicate with those who are in need around you. And look for special opportunities. And if you haven't found any by tomorrow morning, pray that God will give you some. He probably will. He probably will. And make opportunities. That's the kind of time when we have to say, excuse me, brother, <clears throat> I have something to talk to you about. That's great. And it also ties into that other message that we had a few weeks ago about hospitality. If you have somebody over, it's kind of easier to warn the unruly, support the weak, and comfort the faint-hearted. And then sometimes, shut up. And remember that comfort and edify one another is not the only command in the Bible. We're also commanded, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. We're also commanded, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And we're also commanded, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. But those are to be held in balance. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to talk to any of the brethren about anything serious because I'm going to be under judgment. It's not intended to shut us up. It's intended to shut up sinful talk. It's intended to shut up judgmental talk. It's intended to shut up unwise talk. It's intended to cause us to think about and remember all of those messages on conscience. Stumbling blocks and causing our brethren to fall into sin in various ways we should remember that our tongues, while we think we're building someone up, might tear them down. We might think that we're warning the unruly, but we're actually warning the weak, and we end up with a mess. We might think that we're comforting the faint-hearted, and we're actually comforting the unruly, and we might be in trouble. So we need much wisdom. We will fail, fail but Christ has atoned for our sins, and he is our captain, and he's given us an under-captain who also helps to guide all of us in the trenches, and we will have wounds, but help each other. Amen. And let's make our church a community of communication by God's grace and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, thank you that you have made us a little bit of the kingdom of light. And Lord, we are, we are not what we should be, 
but thank you that we are not what we were. And thank you also, Lord, that by your word and by your spirit, you are making us what we should be. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us more and more. Lord, give us wisdom. I pray you'd give me wisdom. I imagine I'll probably have special opportunities to see my own weakness in these areas very soon. Lord, have mercy upon me as my sins in this area, I'm sure, outweigh my brothers. But, oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for us, that we might have eternal life with you, that you loved us and gave yourself for us. And now we are waiting for that glorious day when you will come. And, oh, Lord, the kingdom, the empire of light will burst on this world. And, oh, Lord, destruction will come to the wicked. Lord, I pray that all who hear this, Lord, will turn to you. Lord, that you would bring many out of the kingdom of darkness. Oh, Lord, don't you, isn't your purpose that your kingdom would be great and glorious, and it will be. And Lord, bring in many into your kingdom. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. If you would, please stand, and we'll have the benediction. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.